arm yourself and protect yourself and your family. They're like sharks swimming around, waiting to dash in and make a grab. Stay in the center of the sidewalk. Use those big glass windows as a mirror to check behind you. Stay out of war-torn Wilmington. The vermin are right there, ready to grab your wallet, your phone, and whatever else they need for their fix. The sharks want an easy meal. Don't make it easy. Keep your eyes open. Fathers, please stay with your families. Your sons need you. It is a disgrace and disgusting what a war zone Wilmington has become. Wilmington is a cesspool. Take a wild guess who made it that way. So what you just heard was more or less a random selection of comments from articles about shootings in Wilmington, Delaware. Wilmington's a small city, about 70,000 people. And last year, it was given the great honor of being named Murder Town USA by whoever comes up with the headlines at Newsweek. It really is a catchy title. And honestly, that's probably why I borrowed it for this show. But I want to make something clear. Wilmington is not actually the murder capital of America. It's not even the murder capital of the tiny strip of I-95 that it's on. Chester, Camden, and Trenton are all doing worse when it comes to violence. And if you compare crime rates in poor neighborhoods in Detroit, Philadelphia, Chicago, you'll find that Wilmington is just an example of what's happening all over the country. And what's happening everywhere is that poor, young, black and brown men are shooting other poor, young, black and brown men. All those comments you heard make Wilmington sound pretty scary. And the reality is, if you're a young, poor black man living in Wilmington, you probably should be scared. Of course, I should mention, all those comments were written by white people. I'm Zach Phillips, and over the course of this show, I'm going to try and find out more about the problems we have in cities like Wilmington. And I hope you'll join me. So, like, are you going to throw questions out there and I answer them, or do you want to just basically give you, like, an outline of just... Well, I'll throw questions at you. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. way you can pull it out of me. This is Ricky Reyes. Uh, people call me Ricky. That's why he probably introduced you as Ricky Reyes or whatever, but um, my name is Enrique Reyes. I'm, I'm Puerto Rican and Dominican. Ricky's 23. He's lived in Wilmington his whole life. I'm an open book. I have no problem, you know, trust me, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't at that comfortability level to the point where I was actually going to give anyone my story. The reason we're talking to Ricky is because he has a unique perspective on these challenges. One that you don't see represented in news journal articles or on Facebook. Ricky is one of these kids that everyone's so afraid of. From Short Order Production House at Wilmington Station, this is Remaking Murder Town, Season 1, Poverty, Punishment, and Possibility. This program is brought to you with support from the Delaware Center for Justice. Episode one, The Muck. So I'm an open book. Um, if anything, you know, I would rather you just tell me what it is you would probably not like me to say. Ricky was part of a pretty typical household in Wilmington. Single mom. Four brothers. I was a third of, of four. You know, fighting every day, things of that nature. But we all had this, always had a tight bond. Always, because we, we felt like we were in the jungle together. And we had to look out for each other. And that's just the way that we was brought up. 
What do you mean you were in the jungle together? Basically, just our environment. You know, it's it's it's, it's like jungle. You know, it's like you 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 basically you're out there trying to survive. Keep in mind, we're at about a 30 or 40 year low on homicides in the, in the country. You do see an uptick in medium sized to small cities like Wilmington. This is Dr. Yasser Payne, a professor from UD. Dr. Payne's from Harlem, and he's been studying street life for his entire career. I think media in general um, has completely exaggerated the context of violence in these neighborhoods. Not saying we don't have an issue or challenges with violence and other forms of crime, but it's not actually happening in the ways that we believe, right? So most, for the most part, street life is a very insulated experience. And homicide is a within-group phenomenon, violence, crime, all within-group. For the most part, they deal with one another. There is a part of Wilmington um, and, a, and a demographic of Wilmington of young black men ages 16 to 25 that are really living in a world that most of us don't understand. This is Ryan. Um, so my name is Ryan Tech Cooper. I'm an attorney. I work for the American Civil Liberties Union uh, here in Delaware. I interviewed a number of people for this show, and almost invariably, the first thing that anyone wanted to talk about was just the scope of the poverty that is in Wilmington. But what we're seeing is born out of extreme economic poverty, born out of third world living conditions. There are whole neighborhoods where the median household income is less than $10,000. Uh, there are census tracts where almost no one graduates from high school. Uh, and so they, they, I mean, it's, we don't think that these sort of conditions exist in the United States. I think a lot of people aren't aware that these sort of conditions exist, but there are pockets of Wilmington that are as poor as anywhere in the world. And so when we talk about what's going on with gun crime and, with, and murders in Wilmington and crime in general, we have to start from understanding that it, it, it's, it, the problems are extremely deep. Uh, and they start with n having no money at all. They use the word muck. I come from the muck. This is Corey Wright. He works with and mentors kids who have been incarcerated with gun charges. Muck. That's that's their phrase for some of the the the, the of their situation. It's called muck. I, I'm I'm from the muck. So muck is like murky, dirty mud water. So that's and that's what I get from when I hear it. Where but, did that come from? I mean, take a ride down some of these streets. So when the Newsweek article came out, a lot of people, you could just get this sense that people were super scared of being thought of as murder town. And they still are scared. But there's already a significant part of the population who, amongst themselves, refers to Wilmington as the muck. I find that really interesting. In our study, we found nearly 70% of the men don't have jobs. 10% don't 
whatever unemployment rate that we were pulling our hair out over in right, the Great Recession is laughable to these neighborhoods. Just a reminder that Dr. Payne is a scientist, so he does give you a lot of numbers, but just be aware that um, he deals with a lot of numbers. Sometimes you have 40, 50, 60 percent of the neighborhood that are making less than $15,000 per year. I mean, it looks like that if you go in there, right? But have you ever tried to raise a family on $15,000 a year? When you live in cities, it's really easy to become desensitized to poverty because you see it so much around you. But what you see out in the streets is really just such a small portion of what poverty really is and what it, what it means in someone's life. We have some people that live in just horrible conditions. Another person we'll be hearing a lot from is Charlie Copeland. I mean, you know, houses with, with uh, you know, windows that don't close properly and, and heat that doesn't function properly. Uh, I have a very good friend of mine who, who has a, a church in the city, and it's a small church, and it's very sort of neighborhood-focused. And he says that, you know, when they get a new family, usually a mother and a child or two, the first thing they have to do is teach the children how to use a knife and a fork because they've been so used to eating out of a box. So they go to the corner store and they get whatever that's in a package and they just eat it, right? I mean, you know, that is, that, that is, that's poverty. Here's Ricky again. You know, some days mom, probably mom didn't cook that day or some days she did cook that day. I just didn't get enough because I'm the third. The two older ones gonna make sure they get theirs. That younger one, she's gonna definitely make sure he gets his and then she has to eat and I have to eat. Many nights Ricky would go to bed having eaten nothing but a few slices of bread with butter. You toast the bread and I'll just place the butter on it, you know, and then I eat five, six slices. Um, if it's some milk in the refrigerator, I drink that. We had a Kool-Aid a lot in the house though. Um, Kool-Aid was fairly cheap. You know, you just basically sugar water with a little flavor. So, you know, we had that in the house and that was dinner on, on some nights. I had one gentleman, right, I do a lot of legal consulting, and his mom's gave him, you know how I used to wash our clothes? They didn't have enough money to go to um, the laundromat. So we just got some uh, powder, and he said we just put it in the tub, fill it up with water, and just start stomping on the clothes. I'm talking like in the 21st century, like 2000, like he's in prison now, but this is happening 2010, 2011, I'm not talking about the 1970s or 1960s. And when I'm hearing these stories, not only from him, but from his family members, this is how you're living in the 20, yeah, he says, do you know how many families live like this in Wilmington? You know, and I've heard a lot, you know, it was just, it was really the matter of factness, the plain, he's, a, he's, he's adjusted to it. He's so used to these kinds of experiences that this is normal. And nobody's losing any sleep behind this. It just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, you know, going to sleep early because you can't deal with the pain in your stomach. You know, you starving. You starving. 
you don't went in that refrigerator 10 to 20 times that same night like if it was something magically going to appear in there you know sleeping with roaches you know, you you trying to get ready to go for for work tomorrow. You got a roach climbing on your back. You fluck the, the the you pluck the roach off you two in the morning. You got to be to work at six in the morning. You know, and do you think you're gonna be able to go back to sleep after you don't have a roach crawl on your face, on your back, on your leg? Nah. So now you're getting up and you're going. You ain't even had no sleep. <laughs> but you can't tell the people at work. You can't tell your, your boss at work, yo, I'm five minutes late. Or I'm 10 minutes late because I couldn't get no sleep because I got roaches. Sleep. I'm sleeping with roaches in my house because my mom ain't got enough money to get a, a professional exterminator in here. This is Ryan Tech Hooper again from the ACLU. It's a world where the majority of them are on probation, which means the police can come and search you without any sort of suspicion at any time. They can come into your house. They can violate you for... Being hanging out with somebody who has a felony. They, in one case, we heard they, they violated somebody for not knowing the names and dates of birth of everyone he was hanging out with. By the way, when he refers to the probation officer violating the kid, he's talking about the probation officer writing up the kid for a violation of probation. Um, almost each and every one of them has gone through some type of adjudication. And most of that is because of where they live, not who they are. It's a location-based crime. If you live in a neighborhood in which there are active drug dealers on the street corner and your feeder pattern school is no good and your parents don't have an education or your mom or whoever you happen to be staying with, you may not even have a home, you're going to wind up in that environment. Uh, and therefore, you, you wind up being adjudicated and having a criminal record because of where you live, not who you are. And then you got to deal with that because once you've been adjudicated, society looks at that as that's who you are. You're a criminal. You know, you were arrested. You, somebody found you with drugs or found a friend of yours with drugs and you were with the friend. And so all of a sudden, where you grew up becomes the defining characteristic of who you are. That has big consequences, both for the community's relationship with the police in a way that we've seen all across the country, um, but also in an in individual's own temperament and personality, uh, you know, being exposed to constant trauma. What do you think that does to you as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I think we are only starting to learn the answer to the question of what it does. We know that uh, exposure to trauma changes you. It changes your brain. Uh, it changes your level of impulse control. It changes how you react to people in authority. And when you start with that stuff, it shapes you as, as a person. It shapes your personality. It shapes your brain. Um, and you know, certainly it shapes your view of the police, right? Um, and you know, no wonder you, know, you're, you might be more likely to run away from a police encounter or you might react differently than we think somebody ought to react when they're getting arrested. Growing up in these neighborhoods, social, the social and cultural value system, the men have to provide. 
So if you ever ask a man in the streets, what does it mean to be a man? All right, I've interviewed uh, hundreds of men in the street, right? Never heard any of them say, kill someone, uh, uh, how many times I go to jail, uh, I've got to be tough, how much sex I have, right? That, that being the, the, the defining characteristics of being a man, right? I've never heard one say that yet. What they have shared with me is this, their number one value or principle as a man is providing. I decided to test this out, and I asked Ricky exactly what Dr. Payne asked these other men. What is it? What does it mean to be a man? Individual can provide and protect for his family. Um, individual can spend time with his family and teach his family, um, you know, and comfort his family and just be there, you know, for your family. Well, I guess we'll score one for Dr. Payne. As a young man, you constantly always proving yourself. You got this. You got this vision in your head of who you want to be. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody has a vision in their head who they want to be. Who did you want to be? My whole thing was basketball, and I was pushing basketball with all my might. But at, even with basketball, I felt like it was a dream that I kind of couldn't pursue. Like it was kind of like, man, I'm, I'm not going, I'm not going to make it to the NBA. And I never really believed in myself anyway to the point that I could do it. You get, you get to dealing with pride issues and dealing with with certain emotions that you really shouldn't be dealing with at that age. So then so I like what, what what kind of emotions? Hopeless, helpless. Like this is it. You said that you always felt like your only options were music, basketball, or drugs. Correct. Um, why wasn't there that fourth option? Oh, just like do well in school and get a job. I wasn't introduced to it. And and what do you mean you weren't introduced to it? I wasn't introduced to someone who went to school, done well, and got a job. My mom, she went to school. She didn't go to college. I think she did like a semester in college. She graduated from high school um, and she went to work. And I see my mom struggle every day. You know, so go to school, get a job. It, it just, it wasn't an option to me. It, that never crossed my mind. It was, if I'm go, go to school, I'm going to school for basketball, I'm going to the NBA or overseas or I'm not good enough to make it in this world, you know, because the job that they're going to give me, you know, my, I look at my mom as a great person inside and out. You know, everybody has their flaws, but look at her. The job that they gave her, did it was it enough to be able to support all four of us and, and her wants and her needs as well as ours? You know, she was paycheck to paycheck. It was no financial freedom you know, in her life, even to this day. And do you mind me asking, what, what, did, what was your mom's job? Oh, she works at the information desk for Women's Hospital for the past 30 years. Before that, she was cleaning in the hospital, and then she went to working in the information desk. So, you know, when people come in, she greets them. You know, they, they need to know what areas are at, you know, in the hospital, and she's the individual that goes ahead and provides that information for them. And, uh, and that's just not a, enough of an income to provide for four? No, no. Mm-mm. And for some reason, it was the description of Ricky's mom's job that really struck me because you, you see poverty, but I guess I just never thought about poverty as an experience being had by the people who are greeting me at an information desk. So here's Ricky's mom doing the best she can, and Ricky's hungry. 
And uh, it wasn't long before Ricky started trying to find other ways to get his needs met. I met this one individual around my neighborhood, and he was going into houses, you know? Got into going into houses with him. So what kinds of stuff were you were you taking? I didn't take the surround sound. I didn't take no jewelry, none of that. I took two trash bags with me, and I took food. I literally went in people's houses and took food out the refrigerator just to put in my house. And it was after one of these early break-ins that Ricky got arrested for the first time. He was eight years old. The Deep End, next time on Remaking Murder Town. Remaking Murder Town is brought to you with support from the Delaware Center for Justice. The show is created and edited by me, Zach Phillips, at the Short Order Production House at Wilmington Station, with music by the amazing Jim Guthrie. The show is mixed by Peter Hoops. If you're interested in learning how you can help, please consider visiting the Delaware Center for Justice's website at dcjustice.org.